Paul directly quotes Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1.17. And it's one of the 51 Old Testament quotations in Romans. Now, we can't examine all 51 of those quotations to the same extent that we'll examine this quotation, or else we'd have a whole year of a sermon series just on the Old Testament in Romans. But I think it's especially important to consider this quotation because of its prominent place in the letter. Uh, Its placement indicates that Paul wanted his readers to engage with the whole letter in light of the content of Habakkuk. So in other words, this quotation is an interpretive key that unlocks the letter of Romans. So we need to pay attention to it. And we'll see many connection points between Habakkuk and Romans along the way. So far in Romans, Paul has established that the righteousness of God is fully displayed in Jesus, the resurrected messianic king. In Jesus, God is working to set the world right, to restore to righteousness everything that went wrong as a result of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God. That display of righteousness that happened most fully in Jesus offers the real possibility of restoration through faith in Jesus Christ, and it's summarized in this one phrase, the righteous will live by faith. Now that text, that quotation, is more than a proof text. It's a portal that transports us from Romans all the way back to Habakkuk, where we see the larger story of God's setting right the world at every level. God is working to set right the whole creation, entire countries, local communities, individual creatures. He's doing it by taking care of the sin problem that's infiltrated every sphere of the cosmos. So in this sermon, we're going to travel the portal of Habakkuk 2.4 back to that Old Testament context. We'll consider it there. Then with that context in mind, we'll see how it applies to Jesus, and then we'll see how it has lasting relevance for us. So Old Testament, Jesus, us. That's our path this morning. All right. The Old Testament context of Habakkuk 2.4. For the Old Testament nerds here, I know that it's pronounced Habakkuk, and if, if you're like thinking, this guy is so ignorant, he's mispronouncing Habakkuk, um, that's for free for you guys. For the rest of us, I'll keep saying Habakkuk, and you're okay if you keep saying it that way too. Let's go back to the Old Testament context though. Um, I only say that because I was in an Old Testament class, and I ignorantly said Habakkuk once and got like raked over the coals for that. So I'm, I'm just... In case my Old Testament professor is listening, I'm trying to set things right here. Um, The Old Testament context. Part one of Habakkuk is his complaint against God. So in the first four verses, we have the record of Habakkuk's dialogue with Yahweh, opening with a complaint that identifies two problems. The first problem is that Israel is marked by violence and wrongdoing, And God is not doing anything to save. So God is tolerating wrongdoing. And Habakkuk wants to know why God is tolerating wrongdoing. The second problem is this. Torah, the old covenant law, which was intended to establish justice and righteousness, is ineffective. Even though Israel has the Torah, 
The wicked are restricting the righteous and perverting justice. So God's solution to wrongdoing is not working. Torah is not cutting it. Habakkuk wants a better solution. So two problems. God's tolerating wrongdoing. God's solution to wrongdoing, Torah, is not fixing the problem. So then, in verses 5 through 12 of Habakkuk chapter 1, we're given Yahweh's solution. Yahweh actually agrees with Habakkuk. Things are bad. God needs to do something about it. So he offers a solution. He's going to raise up a foreign nation, the Chaldeans, to execute judgment on unrighteous Israel. Israel is guilty before God for their wrongdoing, and they'll be judged by God through the Chaldeans, who are also guilty of wrongdoing. So unrighteous Israel and unrighteous Chaldea deserve each other. This is retributive, eye-for-an-eye kind of justice at its finest. But then, as chapter 1 continues, in verses 12 through chapter 2, verse 1, Habakkuk objects to God's solution. He's not satisfied with this solution. This is why. Habakkuk tells God that it's bad enough that the God who says he doesn't tolerate wrongdoing is letting Israel persist in wrongdoing, but it's even worse because now that same God is going to allow a more wicked nation to judge Israel, who's relatively righteous by comparison to Chaldea. So how is it right or righteous for God to use a wicked nation to execute judgment on the relatively more righteous Israel? Do you see the problem? Habakkuk saying God is compounding his toleration of wrongness. He's not fixing it. So then in a lengthy response, in Habakkuk 2, verse 2 through 20, Yahweh asserts that in fact all people are guilty of wrongdoing. So he's right to execute justice however he wants because all parties are equally guilty. No one's more righteous than another person. So God identifies five areas of wrongdoing that both Israel and Chaldea are participating in that condemn them both before God with the result that they're both guilty and they can't object to the just penalty, which is death. So he says in 2.20 that everyone is silent before God in their guilt. Well, Paul does something very similar in Romans 1 and 2 when he declares that everyone is guilty before God, Jews and non-Jews, and that every mouth is shut, there are no excuses. You can see how this whole book influences Romans. Well, in Habakkuk 2, 2 through 20, Yahweh pronounces woes on the people who have established their lives through wrongdoing. So he's pronouncing woe oracles on people who have violated Torah. And he's implying that Torah isn't the problem. His law isn't the problem. It's the people who are failing to live according to it. If the Torah had been obeyed, Righteousness and justice would have been established. Society would have been just right. But Torah, even in its simplest form, the Ten Words, or what we call the Ten Commandments, even in its simplest, most basic form, had been violated by everybody. When Moses gave the law to Israel from God, he told them that if they maintained these stipulations, they would find life. So he told them, choose life and not death. 
live according to the stipulations of the old covenant. But they chose death instead. And in these five woe oracles that mirror the Ten Commandments or the Ten Words, God pronounces death because that's what everyone's chosen. So in the first woe oracle in verses 6 through 8, he pronounces a woe on those who take what belongs to another. Those who acquire goods through theft and plunder, which often included murdering the rightful owner, sentence themselves to the same sort of punishment, which is death. The second woe oracle in verses 9 through 11, there's a woe pronounced on those who gain wealth through dishonesty. The possessions that they dishonestly acquire become witnesses against them before God, even if the people that they swindled are no longer around to testify. Third, verses 12 through 15, there's a woe pronounced on cities and societies that are formed through the unjust treatment of others, especially through stealing the land of other people, acquiring the cities built by other people, and benefiting from the labor of other people. Those cities will come to ruin over time, and they'll be replaced by cities built by God without hands and filled with righteous people so that the glory of the Lord will be known across the earth. Fourth, there's a woe oracle in verses 15 through 17 against those who sexually exploit others and who participate in sexual indecency. Those who exploit others sexually and in this case, in Habakkuk, it's by getting them drunk and then raping them. And those who participate in sexual indecency will eventually find themselves drunk, not on alcohol, but on the cup of God's wrath. The fifth woe oracle is in verses 18 and 19 against those who fill temples with man-made images of false gods. These idols have less glory and life than their human makers. And these lifeless idols are incapable of saving anyone from God's wrath and offering them life. So every person is guilty before God. These five oracles broadly encompass sinful society everywhere we look. Paul makes the same point throughout Romans. The wages of sin is death. Now that sentence of death is fitting because people in their sin have embodied death in the way that they live. This is what God is getting at in chapter 2 verse 5 when he points out that their way of living is characterized by death. This is how the wicked person is described. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol and like death he is never satisfied. He gathers all the nations to himself. He collects all the peoples for himself. His point is that those who consume everything around them in imitation of death will find themselves consumed by death as well. So, so what looks like the good life, sin, a sinful way of living, what looks like a good life is nothing more than the glow of stolen life that's been consumed by the parasite of sin. It's short-lived. It's vampiric. It's not real. It's only pretend life. So seen in this way, death as the wages of sin is not an arbitrary punishment by God. It's the natural consequence of wrongdoing. It's wrongdoing exposed for what it really is, 
It's sin with the mask ripped off. It's a poison that leads to a slow and painful death. So I'm, what I'm trying to say is, sometimes people try to picture God as this angry guy up in heaven just waiting to smack people. That's not what's, what's being projected here. It's that death is the natural consequence of sin. The unrighteous, by their unfaithfulness, will die. However, in Yahweh's response in this chapter, he gives us one seed of hope in verse 4 that will sprout into a bountiful harvest centuries later in the resurrection of Christ. So to grab onto that seed of hope, we, we have to do a little bit of work. We need to read the phrasing of this verse in the Hebrew Old Testament and in the Greek Old Testament and compare it with Paul's revised quotation. Now, for your benefit, I'm putting the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek Old Testament editions in English, but you'll still see the point, okay? In the Hebrew Old Testament, the verse says, but the righteous one will live by his faith or faithfulness. Now, you'll notice throughout that I have faith and then fullness in parentheses after it. That's because the words that are used can mean faith or faithfulness. Only the context determines. And a life of faith if, what what we, do we call a life of faith? Faithfulness. So they're really inseparable anyway. It's only in our modern construct that we separate these things. The, the, the Bible talks about faith towards something, faithfulness to something. So that explains my parentheses. But in the Hebrew Old Testament, it says the righteous one will live by his faith. In the Greek Old Testament, it says the righteous one will live by my faith or faithfulness, referring to God's faithfulness. In Paul's edition, it says the righteous one will live by faithfulness. Now, the difference is subtle, but it's significant. The Hebrew text is emphasizing the faithfulness of the righteous person, and the Greek text is emphasizing the faithfulness of God. So, in the Hebrew text, the righteous person will live by his own faithfulness. In other words, if, the, if this person rejects the way of the wicked— if he rejects the way of the unrighteous, he separates himself from the five woes that we just heard that produce death. If he instead walks in the way of the righteous, he'll reach that natural destination, which is life. So the way of the unrighteous is a path leading to death. The way of the righteous is a path leading to life. So be righteous. Walk in the way of righteous. And if you do that by your faithfulness, you will live. In that case, this verse functions as an exhortation or a command. Walk in the way of righteousness and you'll find yourself at the destination, which is life. Now, this life is not a reward that has been earned, but instead it's the natural consequence of tying into God's righteousifying mission through the enlivening of the Spirit. Now, on the other hand, if you walk in the way of unrighteousness and refuse to depart from it, you'll find yourself at the destination, death. So again, death is not a cruel, arbitrary punishment, but the natural consequence of walking away from the life of God. This is what Paul gets at in Romans 8.13 when he says, if you live according to the flesh, you are going to die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. They're saying the same thing. 
Now, at the forefront of this declaration is the promise of life, the promise that fills Israel's scriptures, beginning with the tree of life in the garden and continuing with the promise of life in the land, all the way to the picture of life in the new creation. So that promise of life, though, is forfeited by unrighteousness and unfaithfulness. Now, how is it that a person can be sure that the apparent success of the unrighteous will actually lead to death and the apparent suffering of the righteous will actually lead to life? This is why. It's because Yahweh watches over the way of the righteous and he sees that the way of the wicked leads to ruin. God sees it, that's Psalm 1-6, and he convinces us of it in his word. It's because God will be faithful to the righteous and he'll execute judgment on the righteous. That's unrighteous. That's how we can be sure. And that's the picture that the Greek translation gives us. So if the Hebrew translation is the exhortation side of it, the Greek translation is the promise side of it. God will be faithful to bring life to the righteous. This point of view from the Greek text is important because it provides a reassurance for when we falter in our faith. Although we might be faithless at times, although we falter, we're dependent on the faithfulness of God. Even if we're faithless, God will be faithful. What's more, the Greek text cuts off any idea that we can earn or deserve life. It's a promise that's secured by the faithfulness of God. Therefore, we're called to obey the Hebrew text, to live a life of faith. Do you see how these two texts relate? Taken in the way that I've just described it, the two texts are complementary, not contradictory. One emphasizes the proper response to the redeeming righteousness of God, and the other one emphasizes the faithfulness of God to bring his setting right mission to completion. So both meanings come into view, I'm trying to suggest, in the revised citation in Romans 117. So let's talk about the Pauline adaptation of Habakkuk 2.4. So in Romans 1.17, Paul quotes this verse, but as you've seen, he doesn't choose either the Hebrew or the Greek. He combines them. He combines them by removing the pronoun his or my to make the verse ambiguous and capable of communicating both at the same time. So if you're familiar with the phrase a double entendre, how one phrase can have two meanings, that's what Paul does with the Hebrew and Greek text. He combines them so it can take on both meanings simultaneously. He harmonizes these two texts, not just to get around the difficulty of the existence of a Hebrew and a Greek text, but actually to make a very significant theological point. This is his point. In the incarnate Christ, the faithfulness of the righteous one and the faithfulness of God become the same. The righteous one will live by faith. Human Jesus, inseparable in the incarnation from the righteous one, will live by my faithfulness, God's faithfulness. The two become one. So Jesus' own life of faithfulness and his faith in God's faithfulness brought about for the first time the complete fulfillment of God's promise in Habakkuk 2.4. So Jesus' life of faithfulness that led to his death created the opportunity for God to show his faithfulness in the most surprising of ways, the resurrection of the dead. 
the path of righteousness and faith that Jesus embodied did lead to death in the grave, but it didn't stop there. God would not abandon him to Sheol or allow his faithful one to see decay. Instead, he revealed the path of life to him. It's a direct quotation from Psalm 16, 10, and 11. This message is woven throughout Scripture. Jesus' path kept going toward the destination through suffering, through death, and on to life eternal. And Jesus traversed that whole way. So through his faithfulness, and because of God's faithfulness, he received the promise of resurrection life for himself and for the whole community of faith. Now, this text applies so clearly to Jesus' resurrection that it's almost astounding that Paul doesn't quote it sooner in Romans 1-4 when he talks about the resurrection of Jesus. Very often, the New Testament authors will say, this happened to fulfill the scripture that says, right after they talk about something that just happened in Jesus' life, we expect Paul to put this quotation in Romans 1-4, but he saves it until Romans 1-17, to show us that this promise that first applies to Jesus is also true for us. It's just as true for Jesus, or for us, as it was to Jesus. That verse was not written for Jesus alone, but also for us. So in Jesus, the righteousness of God is being revealed from faith for faith. So his life of faith compels us to adopt that same kind of faith, knowing that God will be faithful in it all. This this is the way that Paul uses the verse, but it would be wrong for us to stop there. We, We need to move beyond just that reality to see what it does for us. Because like Habakkuk, Christians are sometimes troubled by the apparent disinterest of God in setting things right in the world. Like Habakkuk, we look around us and see wrongdoing, and like Habakkuk, we look inside of us and see that there's wrongdoing there as well. So we've got to consider the way that this promise is ongoing. When it seems like God tolerates wrongdoing, or when it feels like God has abandoned his setting the world right mission, we need to lean into this verse. So in this very final section, I want to show you three ways that this verse matters for you when you look around the world and you look inside of you and you see wrongdoing. I want to show you how this verse functions as a command, as a promise, and as a calling. Number one, this verse functions as a command. At times, it appears that God doesn't care about wrongdoing. And in fact, it seems like God rewards wrongdoing. Dishonest, unjust, sexually immoral, and idolatrous people appear to be living really good lives. They enjoy wealth and prosperity and pleasure and unrestrained freedom. And because God doesn't lash out with judgment, we're tempted to think that God doesn't care. And for that reason, we're tempted to participate in the same wrongdoing. I think we've all used that, wrong, that logic before. Um, well, they're not being punished for doing that, so I'm going to do it too. God doesn't care. But as Paul will point out in Romans 1 and 2, and as Habakkuk has already done, the end of that kind of lifestyle is death. 
And any delay in the judgment of God is actually his kindness that's intended to bring about repentance, not to encourage participation in wrongdoing. We're missing the clue that God is giving us if we respond in that way. But even still, even in the absence of this lightning strike kind of judgment from God, we need to understand that God's allowance for continued participation in wrongdoing is itself an expression of God's wrath because unrestrained participation in wrongdoing is like signing your own death sentence. Lives marked by dishonesty and injustice and rebellion against God are lives that are actually characterized by death. And although that way of living might be tempting to pursue, we know the end of its journey. Death. This is what Paul gets at in Romans 2.6. God will repay each one according to his works. Eternal life to those who persist by persistence in doing good, seek glory, honor, and immortality, but wrath and anger to those who are self-seeking and disobey the truth while obeying unrighteousness. So as a command, the Habakkuk 2.4, Romans 1.17b hybrid instructs us to resist participation in wrongdoing and instead live in the righteousness of God. It's a command to seek first the kingdom of God and its righteousness and to refuse to live in the kingdom of darkness and to refuse to believe that wrongdoing can bring life and fullness of life and satisfaction and hope and joy and peace and all the rest. The unrighteous by their wrongdoing will die, but the righteous will live by faith. So, So that's the command. It's also a promise. It's a promise that brings hope. Many Christians have been subjected to wrongdoing of various kinds. They've been treated dishonestly, denied justice, sexually violated, abused physically and verbally, and the list goes on and on. And for these Christians who are experiencing wrongdoing done to them, God's justice and righteousness is called into question. How can God be just and righteous when this is happening to me? Will God ever execute justice by judging the wrongdoers and restoring what was lost? Yes. The answer is yes. God will execute a perfect kind of justice, the kind that goes beyond simply punishing wrongdoers, but that actually restores what was taken from you. In our societal enactments of justice, we do our very best, hopefully, to restore what was lost and heal what was harmed. But when someone's been violated sexually or verbally or physically, how can human enactments of justice restore that? How how can human laws and human justice set that right? It might try to replace the embodiment of death with a restoration to life prior to violation, but it just can't do it. The law is being frustrated by the wrongdoers. God's law and human law. No law or judge or social theory can actually restore what was lost. 
We need a bigger restoration and a better righteousness and a better justice. I I want to illustrate this reality in this way, uh, beyond maybe even what we've maybe experienced. I was listening to a podcast this week called Sympathy Pains, and there was this lady who would trick people into thinking that she had all sorts of diseases so that they would care for her. And, And she moved from person to person with a range of sicknesses that she pretended to have and got a range of care. including going to a camp for people with disabilities and having staffers move her from a wheelchair onto a toilet or in a shower. She, She violated these people through her dishonesty. And really, she was just trying to find a way to be loved, and she hurt people while she was doing it. So, so I don't want to be too unsympathetic to her. But what I'm trying to say is people were hurt deeply, emotionally scarred, physically violated. And one of the ladies who'd been manipulated by this person said, this abuser didn't do, didn't do anything criminally wrong, but she did do something that was morally wrong. It's not, a, it's not a crime to tell someone you have a disease when you don't, but it is morally wrong, and the law couldn't fix that. And eventually, this woman did break the law, and she did go to prison, and one of the people that she harmed said this, yeah, she can get locked up and go to prison, but where is the law? The law doesn't account for trauma. What she's trying to say is, human justice systems can't restore what was lost. Only God can do that. Every law, every enactment of justice in our lives is just a mitigation of what's lost. It's not a restoration of it. But God's provision of righteousness and justice does bring about a full restoration of life. How do we know? How do you know in your suffering right now, in whatever trauma and harm that you've experienced, how do you know that God is actually being faithful in that he actually cares about the wrongdoing you've experienced? This is how. Because Jesus was harmed and God was faithful to restore him to life. Jesus was verbally abused as the crowds taunted him and falsely accused him. Jesus was physically abused as he was beaten and executed in the cruelest manner. Jesus was sexually exploited when he was stripped naked and exposed to a jeering crowd. Jesus was robbed as people took his possessions and split them among him. Every single woe in Habakkuk happened to Jesus. Jesus experienced the ways of the wicked who have an appetite like Sheol and like death are never satisfied until they've killed everything in their way. But Jesus the true righteous one who lived by faith was rescued by the faithfulness of God. God proved in Jesus that he's faithful to his promises when he brought Jesus back to life and he brought fullness of life back to Jesus. Jesus' life of faith shows us that we can't judge God's faithfulness based on what happens to us in one chapter of our story, no matter how bad that chapter is the whole story reveals that every hurt experienced, every wrongdoing and act of injustice received, every embodiment of death and even death itself will be swallowed up in the victory of life. No trauma is too tragic. 
No hurt will go unhealed. No physical ailment will remain. No loss will go unrestored. All will be set right and every tear will be wiped away. In our experience of suffering, in our identification of injustice, we can rest assured that our present suffering is not an indication of a separation from God's faithfulness and love. No, in all those things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. God wants every Christian to know that they can have faith in his faithfulness. He, he wants every Christian to know that the path of righteousness does lead through suffering and death. But every step of the way, Christ will secure you in the love of God. And at the end of that path of suffering, there's a beginning that's a new life that will last forever. And that life has no wrongdoing. It's infused with righteousness and justice in life in the triune God. So as a promise, this hybrid quotation assures us that the resurrection life will infinitely restore anything that was lost and will forever heal every one of our hurts. So it's a command and a promise, but it's also a calling. It's a calling to Jesus. It's a calling to participate in God's righteousness by faith in Christ. An issue that's way too complex to address in a sermon like this one is the arrangement of the words in this verse. But in some translations of the Bible, you'll read the righteous by faith will live. As a result of that word ordering, the emphasis is shifted from the promise of life for the faithful to an explanation of how one becomes righteous in the first place. It's a calling to become righteous by faith in Jesus. It teaches us that a person can become righteous only as a work of God through Christ by his spirit. Never earned, never deserved, always by grace through faith. So this hybrid verse is a calling to all people to participate in the righteousifying mission of God through faith, to receive a declaration of pardon from your sin by receiving righteousness through Christ. It's a call to experience the transforming power of God who makes you into a righteous person who lives faithfully, progressively transformed into the image of Jesus. It's my hope that in our exploration of the way Paul uses this Old Testament quotation, that you'll be motivated to look at other of Paul's Old Testament quotations. I think that would be deeply rewarding. But more importantly, it's my hope that God's Spirit will meet you in this verse to bring about its multifunction capacity as command and promise and calling all at once. To let you know that the pastors are here to encourage you and help you in your response. If you'd like to talk with us, to receive spiritual counsel or care or direction, we want to talk with you. I'll be in the lobby and I can make arrangements to do that with you. But however you respond, 
let's commit to receiving this promise, command, exhortation, and respond by faith. Father, we pray that you would draw us into the righteous one, Jesus, by your spirit, and that you would cause us to respond appropriately. I pray that you would give us the steadfastness we need to obey this command, that you would give us assurance by your spirit to believe the promise, and that for all of us, we would respond to the call to come to Christ. Would you do this for your glory? In Christ we pray. Amen. Amen.